0: In the United States, nuclear power is responsible for 55% of this country's clean energy. Okay. But it's only responsible for generating 20% of its electricity. So you're getting a lot of clean energy bang for the buck.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today is Dr. Rita Barrenwall. Rita recently served as the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Nuclear Energy within the U.S. Department of Energy. She has committed her career to extending the use of nuclear energy, not only for its environmental positive impacts, but also for its economic ones. In this conversation, we talk about some of the basics of how nuclear power works, why Rita is so excited about the technology and some of its implications in both domestic and international politics. I found this really edifying, I'm not particularly technical nor engineering savvy. I'm so thankful for her clear and concise communicating style, and I'm excited to continue tracking her work in nuclear as she continues. Here is Dr. Rita Barrenwall. You're listening to
0: Going Deep with Aaron Watson.
1: Rita, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to be talking with you.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So I want to start things off. We need to we need to start at the really kind of ground floor level and work our way up, so we can get in some interesting conversations here. Uh, but the starting point is the basics of how a nuclear power plant works. I think that you know people turn their lights on, um, and it's often not necessarily powered by nuclear energy, but they take for granted whether it's coal or natural gas or solar or renewables or whatever the thing may be powering that. If a nuclear uh, power plant is behind that. What's going on? What's happening?
0: So the way a nuclear power plant works in a nutshell is you have uranium fuel and it creates a fission reaction. And that fission reaction creates heat. That heat in turn is used to heat up water. That water is heated to steam. And that steam in turn turns turbine blades. And that turbine blade activity then is converted to electricity. So really, nuclear power is a heat source that's used to create steam that's used to create electricity.
1: And in general, power across the board is that idea. We we need to heat something up so that a turbine can be turned and that's where the power is generated. Exactly. The difference is where is that heat coming from and what are the costs that we pay for that heat? So very conventionally, um, you know, if you're you're consuming media in some way, shape, or form, you think about burning coal, you think about some of these other ways we do it, there's this carbon that's emitted into the atmosphere and we have all sorts of um, expectations about the potential ramifications of that No carbon, basically whatsoever, when nuclear is being burned.
0: Exactly. Nuclear energy has always been a clean energy source it has not been a carbon emitting source. And really, it's um, very important as states in the U.S. and countries around the world move forward to achieving their decarbonization targets and their clean energy targets to include nuclear energy as one of those facets in that portfolio, because it's always been a clean energy source.
1: And the basic, you know, the other side, the risk factor that people perceive, and, and there's a one, so one of the elements is people, you know, from an environmentalist standpoint, they see something like Chernobyl and they say, wow, there's like a whole part of the environment that's somewhat unlivable or has like lasting damage to it. Uh, but there, there seems to be this gap between we don't want to emit carbon in the environment, so therefore solar, so therefore wind. And nuclear sometimes doesn't necessarily get allocated into that same realm is it really attributable to its kind of history being used as a weapon that that causes that? Or what's your perception as someone who's been in the field of nuclear for such a long time?
0: I think that perception is changing. So so that's a good thing. But um, I think some of the uh, perhaps preconceived notions are based on what folks are familiar with. So I'm really appreciative to have this chance to chat with you and talk about what the benefits are. And we can you know go into to more detail on what those are. But um, since those accidents, let's talk about Chernobyl, let's talk about Fukushima and Three Mile Island. Yep. Many, many lessons have been learned. Technology has been substantially improved and regulations have been strengthened and, and tightened so that in today's technology, today's commercial operating power plants, some of those accidents could never even occur. So while, yes, those those accidents were tragic, some were due to technology, others were due to human error. And those lessons have been learned, internalized, and um, technology has been improved.
1: Can you give some examples of that? Because one of the things as I was doing my research was the concept of a nuclear reactor being walk away safe, which means if everyone walks off the job tomorrow, we're not headed down this dangerous route of catastrophe. But basically, uh, for lack of a better analogy, in my mind, it's like a very small campfire on the ground with a few embers. And more likely than not, it's just going to kind of fizzle out because there's no ready fuel to kind of continue to perpetuate a flame.
0: Right. So a technology that is walk-away safe is designed with passive safety features in mind, such that in the very unlikely event that something like that happens, you you can walk away. And some of these designs are, for example, they have a 72-hour uh, window where within 72 hours, everything will be um, shut down In, in per the design, right? No human interaction, no human interve- and intervention is needed. No operator intervention is needed. And so those are some of the lessons that have been applied, the technology advances that have been applied to existing power plants and new reactor designs.
1: Got it. Um, can you just talk about where the current state of things is? Like, like wh- you know, in the U.S. or internationally, wherever your kind of purview is, what you talked about it being something here in Western Pennsylvania. Where are people getting it? Where are people nowhere close to getting it? And what are the you know trajectories in terms of more reactors are coming online versus some are being shut down and taken offline?
0: Okay. So let's talk about the U.S. In the United States, nuclear power is responsible for 55% of this country's clean energy. Okay. But it's only responsible for generating 20% of its electricity. So you're getting a lot of clean energy bang for the buck. Yeah. Right. Uh, We are holding steady in the U.S. at about 20% of our electricity coming from nuclear. We have two new plants that are being constructed and almost ready to come online. Um, Those are uh, Vogel 3 and 4 in the state of Georgia. Um, Around the world, though, the construction of new power plants has experienced such an uptick um, that the U.S., frankly, is probably falling behind with respect to construction of new power plants. The interest from countries around the world in uh, constructing new nuclear is that they do appreciate that it's a clean energy source, that they do need to decarbonize their electricity portfolio, and many of them are looking to the other benefits that can be offered from nuclear power plants, such as generating clean hydrogen, such as desalinating water, such as providing that hydrogen to the transportation sector to help decarbonize that very, very currently. Pretty carbon carbon heavy uh, industry uh, that should also be decarbonized.
1: And in terms of the business model of a nuclear plant, my understanding is that it's very expensive to build relative to other power plants of other kind of energy types. But on the back end, the long tail of a nuclear power facility it doesn't need to have the same types of costs because of just a different input ratio. So can you kind of talk through that, and maybe contextualize that versus other types of plants?
0: Sure. So if let, let's, let's kind of frame it as we're talking about larger uh, 1,000 megawatt size plants, right? That's, that's generally the average size of an existing power plant these days. Um, they are expensive to build, but they last. Some are licensed for 40 years, but they can easily get their, um, you know, uh, license extended for 20 years and an additional 20 years. So in the United States there are some plants that are going for a second license extension to allow their plants to safely operate for 80 total years. That's a pretty good investment when you when you look at what needs to be put in up front and then you have this this power uh, generation source for for 80 years. So there's that piece of it. The cheapest way to decarbonize any society is to keep existing power plants online. Those are already sunk costs. They're already generating clean electricity, clean energy. And uh, it's. We'll, we'll probably get to it, but you, you will see some plants around the world and even in the U.S. shutting down. Um, in the U.S., the mo- most of the recent shutdowns have been for economic and political reasons, not technological reasons.
1: So what are, are, are some of those political reasons, and maybe this is like a just very cynical, jaded take, if I'm in, say, oil and gas, or I'm in some of the other renewables, I would love to have more of the grid be my energy source that I'm economically tied to versus another. Is it, is it that reductive? Or are there other factors at play when it comes to the political headwinds against nuclear?
0: There, there's a little bit of that, just as you described, um, and then as there's there's this uh, um, also push from certain pockets of constituencies, right? They want more renewables, uh, and and our um, decision makers will certainly listen to their constituents, and so that's why it is important for us to have these types of conversations to say, nuclear doesn't have to, it's not, I'm not saying it has to be 100% of the solution, but it needs to be a sliver of that solution. And the reason is, is that there have been studies uh, after studies that have shown, even if we were to take fossil off the table, which I don't think is realistic in in the short term, um, or you have carbon capture, for example, let's leave all of that on the table. You supplement the rest of that with as much renewables as you can. There's still about a 20% slice that's left that needs to be fulfilled. That can be filled with nuclear. Um, and it should be considered.
1: And even in that world of, of ex- exclusive renewables, you need a lot of batteries in order to make that happen. Just to store it through, you know, with sunlight, sunlight's only you know up for a portion of the day. Wind is inter- intermittent, and if you're going to be able to continue to power things, you need batteries, which are not exactly the most carbon neutral uh, commodity out there.
0: Right, uh, they're they're definitely not carbon uh, neutral. Uh, they're definitely not inexpensive, um, and w- we can talk. A bit more about um, you know what it takes to develop those batteries, how expensive it is, um, the mining operations that go into the critical minerals that are going to be needed to fabricate those those said batteries. But let's also talk about the footprint, right? The physical footprint that is needed for a nuclear power plant um, is much smaller than that that's required for a wind farm or for solar. So, for example, a wind farm requires 360 times the land mass, the land area, sorry, the land area to produce the same amount of electricity as a nuclear power plant. And solar photovoltaic Plants require 75 times more space, so land is at a premium in most parts of the world. Yeah. Um, so that also needs to be considered. While while the the hearts of and minds of folks might be yes, we want to push renewables. You also have to consider the value of the real estate that's going to be needed and the impact of the communities around around um, the solar farms, the wind farms, etc.
1: Gotcha. So we've talked a little bit about these kind of like big. Uh, almost like regional powering type of plants. But another thing that, you know, is 99% over my head, but I've heard the the buzzword for it, these mini nuclear reactors, micronuclear reactors. Can you talk about what the differences, like what what that entails and then what that could potentially unlock that other forms of energy generation wouldn't necessarily be able to do?
0: Sure, sure. So let's, let's, let let's me categorize it first. So we've got the micro-reactors, which are generally speaking uh, about 20 megawatts or smaller. Okay. Then you have small modular reactors, which are 300 megawatts or smaller. And then we have the traditional larger 1,000 megawatts or so sized reactors. So the micro-reactors are the smallest of the ones that we're talking about right now. The niche markets that these smaller reactors, the micro-reactors, can serve include uh, portability. So then you start to think about, oh, well, can the military use them in terms of um, helping support operating bases?
1: And, and they have with nuclear submarines for decades, too, right?
0: Absolutely. Okay. So I started my career um, at Bettis Atomic Power Laboratory here in Pittsburgh, and nuclear power has been used in our U.S. Navy's aircraft carriers and submarines for decades.
1: Without like any sort of major, you know, knock on wood here, but like any sort of major issue Correct. in any way, shape, or form.
0: Correct. Safely powering tens of thousands of miles of U.S. Navy activity.
1: Got it. But there's other forms of transportation. So what are just some of the implications of, okay, we, you know, we could think of large ships, uh, medium-sized ships, cruise ships, I guess, in, in different forms. What are some of the other applications of something like that?
0: So for for, for micro-reactors, the, the, some of the other... More near-term applications include helping power islanded communities or remote communities. So in the u s, let's think about Alaska, where yeah. diesel is very expensive to truck in and out, right? If you have a microreactor that's powering a community, cost costs for um, for the fuel that's needed for electricity generation goes down. Let's talk about Puerto Rico, where you you want a reliable energy source that can withstand climate events. yeah, And nuclear can do that. Nuclear power is resilient. It's reliable. It's always on. It can be tapered back if you want to supplement uh, you know, your portfolio with solar, um, with wind, with hydro. It plays well with others.
1: Uh, as a kind of reductive framework. So once again, I'm like coming at it from this kind of very newbie mind, but I think a lot about um, allocations of a portfolio in a in a finance context. So, you, you know, you want some bonds, you want some equities, I'd argue you want some crypto, you want some real estate, you want some other entities in there. And to me, the notion of we've got this one specific uh, play that, like you said, has uh, high upfront costs, very low long-term costs, and very basically n- nil kind of carbon release, seems like an absolute no-brainer in the context of a larger portfolio. But that's a very kind of reductive view. you have literally dedicated your life to this technology, and um, just like in past conversations when I, when I meet someone who's in those shoes, I'm really curious about the origin stories of that when When did the light bulb come on when when did you decide, man, this is really something that you know years and years of work would be worthy of setting a goal for
0: okay, so it starts back when I was looking for my first job out of graduate school. Um, All of my degrees are in material science and engineering. I am not a nuclear engineer by degree. Um, But my first opportunity was at Bettis Atomic Power Laboratory. And what really enamored me was the high-tech laboratory equipment that I would be able to use if I went to work there. So it was really the innovation um, aspect of the field. And once Uh, I was there, really got to work on exciting work and develop new technology for the U.S. Navy's aircraft carriers and submarines. But what sort of was my aha moment, if you will, was when I got to take a van full of summer interns down to Newport News Shipyard to watch ships being built, aircraft carriers being built, submarines being built. And that year, we had the opportunity to stand inside the Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier as it was being constructed. And I stood inside where the nuclear reactor was going to go, so the reactor compartment area. And I looked up several floors, and I realized that thing that I'm working on back in this little lab in Pittsburgh, the little thing that I'm working on, the fuel, powers this behemoth of a ship to help defend our country. Yeah. So the energy density of uranium that is uh, leveraged to create nuclear power was was turning point number one for me.
1: Can you could just contextualize that real quick? just like like you know I don't know if it's cubic feet or how you would quantify that versus say like the tank of a you know an oil rig or something like
0: that. Oh my goodness. Um, th- the fuel in commercial reactors is the size of a um, like a pencil eraser oh on gosh. on a pencil, right? so it's stacked up. Uh, into into rods and then those rods are put into an assembly and you have several assemblies, a few hundred assemblies in a nuclear power plant.
1: Okay. So
0: every about 18 months, one third of the fuel assemblies are removed, re- repositioned to optimize um, the heat output, and uh, eventually taken out and considered as as used fuel. And we can go down that road in a moment, but. So so turning point number 1 was was when I visited the the shipyard. What has kept me in this field is the fact that nuclear power is a clean energy source. I'm a mother of two teenagers and I sincerely want them to inherit a world that is cleaner than what we have today and I know that my work And my career in the nuclear industry will help them inherit a world that is cleaner than it is today.
1: And so contextualizing that from a global view, we talked about the U.S. here a bit. Are there specific, you know, countries, geographies that do nuclear relatively well? Because like you said, we could fix this all. And I know that there's these international kind of climate agreements, but we could fix this all, say, in one country. But then if on the other side of the uh, of the globe, they're just spouting out coal, that's going to, not even cancel itself out. That's still going to be a huge problem. So, so what does that look like at, at like an international view?
0: Yeah, um, internationally, there are uh, countries that have existing nuclear that are continuing to build out and increase their nuclear portfolio. Unfortunately, um, we also have countries like Germany that have. Uh, Decided that they do, they want no nuclear in their portfolio, and they're shutting down plants. So at the end of last month, um, nu- uh, Germany shut down three of their nuclear power plants prematurely. And is that
1: all political for you? It's like all that, political. That's constituency is saying that that's not something that we're interested it's, in.
0: It's um, in Germany, I believe it was the government. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So. I know, so so unfortunately, one of the other things that's in the news is the kind of uh, political unrest in Kazakhstan, and that is a major location for uranium mining. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a kind of a connection there where, you know, I would imagine, not that the Kazakhs have a particularly outsized role in terms of affecting international um, kind of energy policies, but I have to imagine that in areas where uranium would be mined, there would be a kind of connection to optimism or kind of the uh, proliferation of nuclear power as a specific source is there a, is, that, is that seeing the board correctly or not so much
0: it's um, there there's definitely a uranium source so well done on doing your homework and and there is some tension right now in terms of what's going on there and what's going to happen with the uranium market but the beauty of nuclear power uh, in terms of the commercial aspects of it is that you can store your fuel on site um, and you can have that supply at the ready. And so we are not at the whims um, of, of the immediate turn of tides of, of politics or you know, unrest in countries. Um, so that's one aspect of it. Um, the other is that just because you have a, a country in this case that um, is a critical, a, a crucial source uh, in the nuclear uh, supply chain does not necessarily mean that they are also a user of said critical. Critical or, or crucial resource. Um, Russia and China are both um, big players in the nuclear power plant uh, arena. They are the two countries that are uh, developing and constructing new plants as well. Um, certainly, leaving the U.S. in their in their dust. Um, India is another uh, player. There are many countries around the world that are, like I said, continuing to expand their nuclear portfolio. But to me, what's really, really exciting is the countries that are now exploring deploying new nuclear. They're new to nuclear. They've never had it, but they realize the benefits of it and they want to have nuclear power as part of their electricity portfolio. And then if you expand to um, uh, desalinating water and possibly even decarbonizing the transportation sector to helping those areas as well.
1: So one of the other points there is if you build up a a, um, nuclear power industry and you're able to provide not just cleaner power to the grid, but potentially more at an effective cost. What we're really talking about is more energy per person being able to be used and that's kind of an underrated part of the just macro energy story I'm sorry the macroeconomic story of emerging from poverty it takes power to cook your food it takes power to heat your home it takes power for all these things that you know people in a developed world probably take for granted. But that's really part of the appeal, as you're saying it, in in these places that are maybe new to nuclear, but even just the proliferation of, like you're saying, remote areas, whether that be in a desert or some of these other areas that would struggle to have a consistent connection to the grid in some way, shape, or form.
0: Right. Right. You may not have uh, the ability to even extend the power out to a remote area or to develop a robust grid in a certain area. So what you're touching on is a little bit of what energy justice starts to talk about and address. It is very, very, I think, important to our industry to make sure that we consider elevating um, communities to a quality of life that we all deserve. And you're right that us in in a developed country can very much take that for granted. And we will bemoan if our lights went out for even 30 minutes, right? Um, There are, communities and, and parts of countries that go for days without power on a regular basis and so nuclear power is just one reliable source that could be deployed and especially if we went back to that microreactor conversation or an smr where you can start to positively impact uh, a community that may not have that access to reliable 24 uh, 7 electricity the Going Deep Podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co.
1: So an example like this interview, I, I would say is like me doing a very, very, very small part to contribute to that type of move in in a general way getting back to you and your kind of career arc and the commitment to this technology, um, one of the expressions of that was working as the Assistant Secretary in the Office of Nuclear Energy at the U.S. Department of Energy. That is a mouthful. I did practice that before <laughs> the interview. Um, but from from sitting at that position in particular. So in one seat, you're the engineer actually, you know, constructing and iterating upon the design for its implementation. And then I have to imagine something there. It's much more playing political games, understanding, you know, regulatory policy making decisions that enable this to be unlocked. What did you learn from sitting in that position about what the, you know, roadblocks are to this being implemented more widely?
0: There is a lot of policy decision-making that goes on uh, with, I would say, limited voices in the room. So it is really important to make our voices heard. So not only as a policy maker, but more importantly, I would say, as a constituent. Um, the squeaky wheel really does get the grease. And so if there is um, a a group of folks that go and talk to their congressmen or congresswomen wanting X, Y, or Z, sometimes that's what it takes for, for a change to come to fruition. And really what was most surprising to me was oftentimes when a nuclear energy decision was being made, I was the only Voice in the room um, with that technical depth to contribute to that conversation. So, being present, being represented is really, really important. Um, and so, you know, my challenge to the audience would be make your voices known, make your opinions known. Now, more than ever, today, more than ever, it is so easy to do so. You don't have to go and walk into a staffer's office on Capitol Hill. You can You can tweet it you you can text it whatever you know way you would like but um interacting with those folks with your representatives really really does make a difference um in my role i was able to to interact with representatives and senate and and senators that were on the decision-making committees and tell them what our priorities were for my office, for the Office of Nuclear Energy. But then there, I also had to help represent all of the, for example, the technology developers in the United States, um, or the commercial entities in the United States that work in the nuclear industry. And we, we did achieve a lot of really good things during my time there.
1: What are some of the ones you're most excited about?
0: So the one, I'll, I'll focus on one, the one that I'm most excited about is the launching of what's called the Advanced Reactor Development Program. It's a very large funding program wherein um, we we challenged developers to uh, apply for funding using a concept that they could deploy in five to seven years, a new reactor concept that they could deploy in five to seven years. and so pleasantly surprising to me was we had numerous applications um, from numerous different technology sizes. We talked about the different sizes, but also technology classes. So we have, I talked about how the fission reaction heats water to create steam to generate the turbine. There are other technologies where the fission reaction actually heats liquid sodium, liquid lead. Uh, It can heat molten salt, or it can heat a gas. So there's different technologies. Each of them has their own benefits. Um, Some of them, for example, are that you don't have a pressurized system like you might in in many of today's uh, existing technologies. So it makes it even safer than today's technologies. And today's today's technology is very safe. So um, to be able to launch that advanced reactor development program to challenge our community, our nuclear industry community, to act with a sense of urgency, to be able to deploy new nuclear in variety of sizes, variety of technology classes, to help suit a, a community, a state, a country's needs, um, is is one of my most exciting achievements.
1: And five to seven years, just to contextualize that versus what was. Because like you, you're saying that, like, man, that's really fast. But for many outsiders, they don't necessarily know what it was in terms of shortening the window for these types of approvals and implementations. What was that?
0: Right, It's it, it can be decades long. Yeah. So we are really challenging not only the developers, but arm in arm, we're, we are also asking the regulatory authority. So in this case, in the US, it's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. We're also putting the challenge out to them, saying you will be uh, accepting, you'll, or you'll be seeing um, new designs that are going to be at, requesting you, NRC, to uh, review and hopefully approve these designs in a much shorter time frame because their deployment plan is also much shorter. Now, I want to be clear, the NRC's first and foremost mission is to ensure the safety of the public, so they will never accelerate anything just for the sake of accelerating. It.
1: It's an inherently conservative organization because it's all about risk mitigation and risk management. Just any organization, whether you're an insurance company or a regulatory body, when you're about risk reduction, you're always going to move in that type of way.
0: Right. It is a very... It's a, I, I say we're a stodgy industry, but yes, we're a very conservative industry. And the regulatory bodies' first and foremost objective, their mission is to protect the, the, the safety of the public. That said... We have in the U.S. the regulatory authority that is also looking to modernize. They understand that everything has to evolve, and what worked for the NRC 30 years ago is different than what would work today.
1: Yeah. Back to the context of the United States, you referenced two nuclear power plants that were coming online in Georgia. We talked about one that's located here in Pennsylvania. I've got an uncle uh, in upstate New York who works in a nuclear power facility, and uh one of the kind of premises of the federalist system is that you have state by state experimentation we've covered that in the past here in the context of autonomous vehicles in the streets of pittsburgh you know hosting uber and argo ai and aurora and all them um what is so where's the delineation there because you're talking a lot about federal kind of policy and regulatory bodies but also like are there states that have kind of Try to tend in the direction of being those zones for nuclear-friendly, regulatory subsidy type of bodies.
0: Uh, with respect to, to nuclear, the the regulatory um, framework is federal. Okay. And so, what applies to a plant in Illinois applies to a plant in Pennsylvania, and they actually have site inspectors that are considered resident site inspectors so um, they reside at each of the power plants in the united states so you you really can't uh, the, the rules the same rules apply to all of the plants in the united states let's put it that way um, where things differ has to do with how the markets are handled so there's a deregulated market and there's a regulated market um, the regulated markets the 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 rate payers um, will take on the burden of the costs, wh- whatever they might be. They're distributed, and, and I'm not privy and or, or, or well versed on how that works, but it's um, it's a less uh, taxing environment for the utilities in in a regulated environment. In a deregulated environment, it is very much uh, capitalistic, and those are the the markets where we're seeing um, some. Plants shut down prematurely, or or claim to to be on the bubble to for premature shutdown just because of financial considerations. When the cost of natural gas was so low, um, it it on paper it looked like nuclear was not cost competitive.
1: Got it and maybe this is me kind of being too pie in the sky, but from a geopolitical standpoint, you've referenced Russia and you've referenced China, which are in the the great global game competitors with the United States. Um, And so I have to imagine that in the spectrum of what you would want a competitor to either be doing or not doing, to me, like my view is, It would behoove a competitor for us to fall behind in something like nuclear when they're saying we have this capacity for highly portable um very low carbon Uh, maybe carbon's not so much in like the competitive sense but um you know very long-term cost efficient sources of capital to all sorts of remote applications um does that track with you like in terms of the, the the nuclear competition game at a geopolitical level
0: it, it it does and and part of why we're seeing so when I, I'm talking about when I was at doE we, we would see interest from other countries in u s technology yeah. was because they understood the geopolitical ties that might come with um Non-U.S. technology. Let's put it that way. I'm not going to call anyone out. Right. Um, But they appreciated um, the trustworthiness, the transparency, and the technology that these U.S. technology developers could provide to them, and that's why they were being considered.
1: And we have the technology here. That's also part of the gap that I'm hearing is you know we're falling behind some of these other entities in terms of the implementation of nuclear. But in terms of like what's coming out of an academic institution, uh, I'm going to butcher these, but like you mentioned, like liquid lead, you know, molten salt, some of these other uh entities that could be heat up to spin the turbine. Like we're at the cutting edge in terms of developing those things. It's about actually getting it from the research paper, from the kind of concept into practical utility.
0: Right. The the technologies, those those advanced what what we're calling advanced technologies are not advanced. They were invented decades ago. The reason why the time is right to deploy them now in new nuclear technology in new nuclear plants is because of all the ancillary ancillary advances that that have come about. So you've got remote sensing, you've got modeling and simulation tools, you have advances in materials that are now not going to corrode like they might have 30, 40 years ago. Um, You have uh, all of the wireless technology that can be uh, implemented in a plant. You have digital um, uh, digitization that can be implemented in a plant as well so all of those ancillary advances which I don't want to minimize because they are very very important are really what's helping propel the heart of these advanced reactor technologies and um, is is making it right for them to be deployed in this time frame
1: got it um so as we aim towards wrapping up the conversation here Rita I want to kind of come back to that kind of career arc story and Mm -hmm. just as you're thinking about applying leverage to this problem there's a there's a nice kind of reality that as you establish yourself your options and your kind of choices become less about like what is like the you know the job that gets me my foot in the door but now you have a reputation you have a standing within the field of nuclear and i can go figure out where to maximize that impact how are you thinking about the high leverage places to push similar to the policies that you rolled out when you were at DOE?
0: My, my focus is on moving with a sense of urgency. We are, you, you touched on it, we're a conservative industry. We are slow to embrace change. And we are a very risk-averse industry. All of that can still be true, but when you look at what is happening worldwide, you look at all of the devastating climate events that have happened uh, just in the past year, right? Past 12 months. You look at what decarbonization targets are out there for for countries that um, are are whose populations are suffering. Um, We, as an industry, need to move with a sense of urgency. And that's where my focus is, is to push this community, which the the nuclear industry really isn't that big. So to push this small community to move faster and to do so certainly in a conservative manner, but also to take calculated risks. And all along the way, every step of the way, we're the the only uh, sector of the energy uh, industry that's fully regulated from cradle to grave. And so it's um, no corners will be cut in this push, but it's to get folks out of their comfort zone a bit and just say, well, just because it took you five years last time doesn't mean it can't take you. Let's, let's shoot for two and a half years this time. Um, and, and that was the goal behind the Advanced Reactor Development Program, and that's really where my focus is going forward, too.
1: Beautiful. I want to aim towards wrapping up, before I ask the standard last questions, anything else that you were hoping to share today that I just didn't give you a chance to?
0: We, we talked a little bit about used fuel. One thing I wanted to yeah, share go, was that, um, that fuel in a commercial in a commercial power plant, once it's considered used, has actually only been used five percent. Wow! And so it still has ninety-five percent of its utility left in it, essentially. And so, you know, I want folks to to appreciate that uh, we're really talking about almost new-in-box kind of fuel when it is actually. Con- considered used and is put into storage in the U.S. at the moment. It's put into um, uh, dry storage casks for storage on site at the moment, and it's safely stored and has been for many, many years and can continue to be stored on site safely for the entire life of the plant, even if that life of plant goes out to 80 years.
1: Gotcha. And is there the potential for this rod with 95% of its capacity left in it, is there the potential in like some sort of reduced capacity to also be reutilized? Or is that not necessarily optimal?
0: Oh, it absolutely could be reutilized. It could be recycled. And in other parts of the world, fuel like that is recycled. And in the United States at the moment, it's just not a position or or a policy to, to recycle fuel.
1: Interesting. Well, that sounds like it needs to change. <laughs> um, <laughs> Awesome. Well, Rita, this has been fantastic. I want to uh, make sure that people can follow along with your career, the stuff that you're up to. Um, What digital coordinates can we provide people if they want to learn more?
0: Uh, My Twitter handle is RitaB66, and I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can connect with me there.
1: Awesome. We're going to link that in the show notes. GoingDeepWithAaron.com slash podcast is the place to find it for every single episode of the show, or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. But before I let you go, Rita, I would like you to, it sounds like, reiterate your personal challenge for the audience.
0: So um, a challenge would be to make sure that you are talking with your representatives in the United States um, and your, um, I guess, political leaders around the world to ensure that they understand that you want nuclear power to be part of your energy portfolio. The squeaky wheel gets the grease.
1: I love it. Something from all my understanding that I am certainly in favor of. I uh, you know, have not done the requisite research to to match yours, but it does seem like uh it holds an immense amount of promise in both the energy independence conversation and in the decarbonization conversation as well, which you know, from the political spectrum, it really feels like those are like different ends of the spectrum in terms of people's kind of talking points and positions the fact that you can thread a needle between those two is always something that kind of perks my ears up rita this has been fantastic thank you so much for coming on the podcast
0: thanks for having me Aaron.
1: we just went deep with rita baronwall hope one out there has a fantastic day Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Rita. If you are interested in thinking more about the future and the potential for technology to make things less expensive over time, I think you should check out our past conversation with the author and entrepreneur, Jeff Booth, who focuses on the concept of deflation, the deflationary aspects and impacts of technology and what that means about the future working world. I'm going to link that in the show notes, but also hope that you hit subscribe because we have some fantastic. Interviews coming real soon.
0: Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.